0: Adriel versus the oligarchs. We're taping this show on
1: December twelfth. So, Matt, just before we started taping here on Thursday, uh, Twitter announced that it would begin verifying all congressional and gubernatorial primary hopefuls. And uh, I believe the story broke through Politico. This is a really big deal because uh, a lot of candidates have complained that in the past year, while Twitter has had no process for verifying uh, notable individuals, uh, they're at, a, at this disadvantage because incumbents uh, can get verified. And I've actually had this issue with my clients. So, you know, I have uh, an email from Twitter explaining the policy. Uh, I've complained about it on Twitter. Uh, others have. It's been written about. It's also a, a challenge for Twitter because uh, there are uh, white supremacist candidates uh, across the country. I assume they will be verified. Uh, and and there'll be the question of, do people who are verified get special privileges from Twitter? But it certainly helps the progressive challengers, who uh, I think are much more prevalent than the bad actors, uh, who now can can get verified by Twitter. Um, it also says anyone can do what I did and go run for governor uh, and uh, and get their Twitter account verified, I guess.
0: And what's the just for for uh, the not novitiate? What is the benefit uh, what are the unique benefits of verification uh and how would and what are these special privileges or uh, is it just a uh a veneer of legitimacy or is it other things as well
1: well i think that veneer of legitimacy is is significant twitter has used uh taking away someone's verification badge this this like check mark on a blue background right uh, little, little like uh permanently logo next to your username on Twitter. And uh, they've taken it away from people for violations, sometimes as a precursor to banning them if they keep up uh, bad behavior. Um, So it's a little bit of like a rank thing on Twitter. It very much is a a mark of privilege. uh, And you get other, um, there's some features in Twitter, that are unlocked, although I think they've, they've reduced some of those. There used to be a filter for sure. And it, it may be present in in, um, in some of the apps still. I don't know if it's in the API where you could uh, see just uh, replies just from verified people. Um, you could see your followers uh, who are verified. Um, I know that, uh, yeah, you still have it in notifications, actually. If I, I am a verified user, I did it when Twitter was allowing folks to apply for it, and I had to apply a few different times. But I followed a guide that was put out, I think by uh, I think by a blogger from Buffer. The verification got rejected a couple of times, and finally it did. And it, it really had a lot to do with what your profile picture was, what your username, you know, and your your little written bio, and what links you used in your profile. It was kind of like you know, are you a reputable Twitter user? Uh, And then they just stop doing it. Um, But I can click right now and it shows under notifications, I click verified and I see only interactions with other verified people, right? So you're kind of screening out the hoi poi and, uh, I, in that way, it's been something that was more like for journalists and for uh, actors or whatever, people who wanted to, to have uh, the rarefied error of only other verified users. Um, but in the political sense, it's very strange to have only incumbents and not challengers verified uh, because it, it shows some kind of bias. And Politico is reporting that this was because Twitter um, is rejecting political ads and saying that, oh, you know, political speech needs to be organic. And so it makes it even more clear that there's this disparity where the incumbents had an advantage. So uh, doing away with that. And I've already seen candidates tweeting about, oh, now I have the badge.
0: Uh, Public pressure, media pressure, the pressure of the kind of work that you and others are doing uh, is really landing somewhere, at least, uh, with uh, these big social media companies.
1: Right. And in fact, I think that's a a net good. You know, I, I can kind of see, like, the problems that are happening. This, I think, is... Overall positive, I think that they should bring back a verification system where any user that wants to be a verified public individual um, should be able to be verified, because that's kind of where it's useful. It's kind of saying, I stand behind my tweets, basically. It's like a double... Uh, you know, you can be anonymous on Twitter, you can use a real name on Twitter, and then there's other users who are verified. And it seems to me that you shouldn't have that many layers, um, on a platform, but Twitter also, you know, made news this week saying that they want to, um, be a consumer of an API standard, uh, or a platform standard that would basically make Twitter like a consumer of, of maybe an open source project. Which would be amazing. So Twitter, I mean, you get Jack uh, Dorsey, you know, he's doing the, I think he's doing like Wim Hof stuff. He's doing like the, the freezing cold and a lot of meditation, I believe. And, uh, and, uh, the intermittent fasting. So maybe he's, uh, maybe he's realized that he can do more good in the world and, uh, and we're going to see a lot of positive changes. So, um, I, I want to talk about something else that's happening here Thursday. Uh, but, but, uh, first, if, We have a clip uh, from PolitiFact and Capital Public Radio, and that uh, clip is uh, going through how fact-checking actually works on Facebook and what is and isn't covered. Will you clarify PolitiFact's relationship and and working plan with Facebook? Yeah. Because it got very cloudy in terms of Facebook's vulnerability and role in the dissemination of information that was false or fake?
2: Totally true. I mean, I had a conversation with a woman um, about two weeks ago on the phone um, who was – at a base level, was surprised to know that Facebook wasn't fact-checking every piece of information on Facebook. And, and that was shocking for me, but it really speaks to how much more work we need to do about talking about our role with Facebook and Facebook's role in the 2020 election in particular. Um, basically, uh, our partnership with Facebook is, is pretty simple. Facebook flags information that they think might be false um they think it might be false because um someone alerted them to it a a user said hey i think this is false information or their algorithm detected something weird about it um we get a list of stories every day it could be a thousand it could be two thousand stories it could be images videos uh memes we then choose what to fact check um so facebook has no say in what we fact check or who we fact check um but we use that list that they provide as a guide to say what is the most um, viral misinformation or likely misinformation out there. We fact check that information. We find it be, if we find it to be false, two things happen. They, anyone who shared that piece of misinformation gets a notification saying you shared something that was false. Here's the fact check that you might want to read. Secondly, what happens is Facebook takes the step to demote or downrank that misinformation in your news feed. So if you haven't seen it yet, you're a lot less likely to actually see it. Um, now, the controversy is Facebook has exempted one type of speech from that program, and it's direct political speech. So uh, if Capital Public Radio published mis- misinformation online, I could fact check it and demote that, that Post, But if Donald Trump posted the same exact material, I would not have the ability to essentially penalize him. Now, as you know, Chris uh, here at PolitiFact California and us at PolitiFact National fact check politicians every day. Um, So that doesn't change. It's just that Facebook doesn't take the the. Penalizing action based on our work.
1: We've had that conversation here, Chris, right. and partly the way it involves a campaign for governor in the state right? and where people take stands on being able to know and sort through what's true and false.
0: Right. We even have a, uh, a man who is running uh, as a sort of a protest campaign on this very issue, Adriel Hampton, a right. San Francisco man who this is really his sole issue to protest Facebook's what he calls a broken policy.
2: I think the broader question is, how do you fight disinformation in general? And isn't the fight going to be more intense than ever in this next 2020 campaign cycle? Yeah, I think it's really hard. And I don't, I don't honestly, I'll be frank, I don't think we have a good answer yet. Um, one of the things that worries me is I think the people who read or see fact checks, uh, like the ones Chris writes, are probably the people who need it the least. Mm-hmm. right? So um, uh, we need to do a much better job of trying to reach the people who actually need the corrective information. And that's really hard because you're, you're trying to go at someone's core fundamental beliefs. Now, um, I think that actually the one thing about the Facebook project that I really do like is it's really the first time fact checkers have a direct and very tangible impact on the spread of misinformation online.
1: So I think it was a really interesting look inside how the fact-checking process works. It was interesting when Aaron said, thousands of stories come to them each day or thousands of posts, and then they choose which ones to take action on. Sort of like, uh, you know, it's like the Supreme Court, it's like uh, that ruling will stand or or it won't. and it also tells you that like a fraction of the things on Facebook do get checked. I did talk uh, in the past to one of the fact checking groups uh, called Lead Stories. They have something called Trendalizer that alerts them when something is going viral and that's uh, one of the ways that they uh, prioritize what to check. Um, but we also just don't know how many user complaints does it take to get an ad into the queue. And then the big thing is, these guys are saying straight up, we fact check all the politicians, but on Facebook, they're not doing that and they're not um, limiting the content uh, if it's not, uh, not factual, regardless of, of what these independent, uh, journalistically trained fact checkers determine. That problem with political fact checking uh, first really came to a head after Biden uh, was assaulted by the Trump campaign about his son's uh, involvement with Ukraine. Uh, Ukrainian uh, energy firm and independent fact checkers were saying that the ad was not true. Uh, and uh, Nick Clegg, uh, formerly of the Liberal Democrats in the UK, was uh, defending that policy of Facebook not fact checking political ads. So we've now got an election uh, going on in the UK as we're speaking. The results are uh, likely beginning to trickle in, and we'll know uh, in the next day or so the results. Uh, what happened uh, in that election with Facebook?
0: Yeah, imagine my non-surprise after doing three shows with you on this uh, to, to open up this article that you sent me on these dishonest, micro-targeted political ads in the UK uh, run on the conservative side. Uh, so from First Draft News, the headline is thousands of misleading conservative ads, sidestep scrutiny thanks to Facebook policy. Uh, And uh, it says, according to the data available through the Facebook ad library API, nearly 90% of the ads posted in the first days of December push figures already challenged by Full Fact, which is, uh, Full Fact is the UK's
1: leading fact checking organization. Wow. You and I are both uh, old enough uh, and uh, experienced enough in the journalism industry to remember when there wasn't a Huge number of independent fact checkers i is this something that the internet created because it used to be that that newspapers had some credibility they had journalistic standards they had associations for journalists who want to opt in to certain standards and then uh, is this a new thing you know britain 's biggest independent fact checker or there was the case that I think we we discussed it on a previous episode with the uh, uh, the Dutch fact checker like quitting because they didn't want to, uh, put up with Facebook's policies around political ads.
0: Well, I, I Facebook changes the equation because uh, as we've talked about the, ad, the number of ads to fact check is just, is physically impossible. But as far as the organizations, it seems like, uh, the, these fact checkers are either affiliated with media, uh, uh, so I know for example the Washington Post has its own uh, sort of fact checking blog um, mm. and th- but then you also have uh, organizations like uh, this one in the UK fullfact.org uh, which seems to be doing good work there including forcing Facebook to recently to deactivate some conservative party uh, advertisements or I guess I should call them adverts because it's the UK, adverts is the UK. Uh, but uh, <laughs> so so they're, and they're a, they're a non-profit what we would call a non-profit they, they In the UK, it's just all, they're all called charities, but full fact is a nonprofit organization.
1: Okay. Yeah. And, and one of the things that's crazy is, uh, I saw a statistic that said that of, of 88, there were 88 ads that, uh, or themes that, uh, were found to be, uh, factually inaccurate. And that was for the conservatives and zero for labor. This, I I know there's always allegations and there are different forms of media. This was specific to Facebook. Um, but the other thing is uh, this first draft article is reporting the conservative party 's official Facebook page created over six thousand ads between the first and the fourth alone um, mm-hmm. and so that 's
0: how many how many ads a day. Uh, yeah, 1,500 yeah, yeah. 1, 1, ads, ads a day.
1: And, yeah. and I think that the, uh, the other thing that happened in the UK election is that uh, the ad library crashed. So for a while, the folks who were trying to monitor what was going on um, with these ads, um, one problem in US elections in the past has been what they call dark posts, which you, they don't appear on your page. They only appear to the people they're targeted at. And the ad library was supposed to get around that problem and say, oh, you know, we'll show you everything that, that someone is running. Um, and, and here, you know, critically in the days before the vote, uh, I think, I think it was, um, it was down on, on the Tuesday before the vote, you had, um, uh, those ads were missing. And so researchers, fact checkers, um, could not, uh, could not see those. Now I think it was, it was a short lived problem, but it just shows you that like, Facebook is now playing this just gargantuan role in our elections. And Matt, I want to ask you, you know, we don't know uh, how the vote's going down yet, but there are a lot of trends we're seeing. With the conservatives uh, running a lot more false information, micro-targeting that to voters uh, in their constituencies, uh, what do you think is going to happen in this election? And do you think that, uh, that Facebook is going to have an accounting because of that?
0: Uh, I, I mean, I have to admit that I'm, I'm biased. I'm partisan in this, in that, in this race.
1: Um, Well, if you weren't, I would hope you wouldn't be on (laughs) Israel versus the oligarch.
0: But, well, I mean, I don't like oligarchs if that's what you mean. Um, but, uh, but, uh, I will look, I will bravely edit this out like a coward if i 'm wrong here, uh, but the conservatives I think, are going to hold or do better uh, in this election and uh, a- and I hope that i 'm wrong, and Ooh. virtually everything that they say in the media seems to be to be. to range from somewhat dishonest to flat out lies uh, from reps of Jeremy Corbyn uh, to their hospital and medical staffing claims uh, that they, and to just everything. And so it doesn't surprise me that they are uh, more implicated than other parties uh, in running these uh, this barrage of uncheckable lies on facebook, uh, and I think it 's unquestionably going to make a difference um, and I would say that you know that 's because as we 've talked about in previous shows the 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 real nefarious and kind of really scary kind of effectiveness of micro targeting
1: there's there 's a school of thought with research behind it that almost says that very little changes the results of a race. Right. And, and that like, in terms of a, uh, a measurable action, like, uh, yard signs or maybe door knocks change it by like two or 3%, right. These very tiny variations, but turnout is critical. And, Really seems to me that the biggest thing that this these misinformation disinformation campaigns are effective at is voter suppression. They get people to be depressed to not come out um, and also they fire up their own base because if if you believe the lies or you're like, well, time we're finally getting them, you know that's a motivator. and this election, I think, is really going to be the first one where after since twenty sixteen And uh, what we saw with misinformation and disinformation in 2016 with the Trump campaign openly uh, uh, working to suppress uh, liberal voters uh, and minority voters uh, as a strategy, you know, using Facebook, Uh, this UK election is the uh, the, the the big one since then. And I think a lot of folks are, are going to be watching this and thinking about it. And I've already been talking with legislators in California. And one of the things I, I've heard is that this is really easy for someone to understand. If you're a, an elected official, you really don't want people to be able to use Facebook to run falsehoods about you uh, unchecked. And so Facebook is I think in for a real ride. A lot of our American listeners might not be
0: aware of the way in which these UK national elections are really just a long series of local elections. Uh, It's just local election after local election after local election uh, where you are electing your member of parliament. And so uh, 10 people showing up or not showing up can swing
1: an MP race would be like if when we have the house of delegates election in Virginia and where all of the, uh, members of both houses are up, uh, they then get to pick the governor. Is that, that kind of a way to think yeah. about it?
0: No, I think that's, that, that's very, it's very much like that. And that's what a national election is like, uh, in, in a system there. And, and I think that, uh, obviously the, this micro targeting has an impact in it manifests its impact in different ways in different elections. But you can totally see how, you know, even the idea of just getting, you know, getting a bunch of people not to show up in a neighborhood uh, is
1: enough to swing any one of these races. It, it makes me think about a, a future show topic which would be the census uh micro targeting and how uh gerrymandering works or are somewhat similar uh in the mm-hmm. way i conceive of them you're looking yeah they're to, cousins they're cousins they really are you yeah, wanna, we should definitely talk about that sometime yeah because you're trying to bring in your affinity groups and push out the people who are less likely to vote for you and that's what you're doing with with this targeting and with the way they draw the lines and i think we're also going to see some interesting things Facebook has already said that, uh, that it's going to be monitoring disinformation about the census to actually take action on that. Um, because Mm. we have a lot of, uh, things riding on, uh, who reports in at the census, how high different, uh, um, Minority groups uh, register with the census versus uh, you know your your uh, middle class homeowners who are who are m- most likely to uh, to return the forms and to uh, respond to to long form and things like that. I want to uh, kind of always have something on here we 're really clearly talking about the oligarchy and how it 's functioning even though facebook and big tech are uh, more and more under fire uh, for how they treat uh, consumers and our privacy and how they treat their workers. Uh, There's a news story in the New York times that just uh, says, well, despite, you know, any kind of, any kind of thing that that's happening, those stocks are just going up, 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 up. And uh, it's pretty uh, intense when you uh, look at the numbers Uh, Apple stock is up 70% on the year. Uh, Alphabet, the Google parent is up 28%. Microsoft's up 49%. Amazon's not doing as well. It's only up 16%. I think that's actually lower than the S&P. And Facebook was up by 53%. It took a hit today because uh, here on Thursday, the FTC, um, it was reported by Dow Jones, is looking at an injunction against Facebook uh, on antitrust grounds. Uh, which would potentially stop it from uh, integrating, further integrating some of its apps. So I guess folks are concerned about how that impacts. uh, Facebook just went all caps, and under Facebook, there are the products, Facebook, Instagram, WhatsApp. And so if you're heavily invested in the middle class, if you've got a big 401k, like things are looking good for you this year, but the actual stock market has become totally separated from the public opinion of these companies and from how they're doing with their employees. Because this week it was also reported, this is in Bloomberg, that uh, Facebook and uh, uh, and Google have both fallen out of the top 10 best places to work. So consumers are, are concerned and workers are becoming increasingly unhappy. You know, they might be making plenty of money, but their lives, Uh, Are not free and uh, their time is not theirs, and so um, see you know you should join the 99%. Organize your workplaces, Matt. What other advice do you have to fight the oligarchs when Wall Street is saying these companies are worth more and more, while the people and the employees? suffering.
0: I remember, too, a few, you know, back a, a couple of decades ago, where, uh, when the t- in the tech, the tech sector was, you know, or at least there was this sort of mythos, uh, that the tech sector was the place to work, um, that the culture uh, of these companies were was a progressive culture. And I think we still sometimes default into assuming uh, that tech CEOs are, are good, Guys, uh good people in some way uh, that, that is, is um, uh, counterposed to uh, maybe paleo conservatives and, and more fas- fascist uh, Republicans and things like that. And that's just turning out to the opposite is turning out uh, to be true. Uh, and uh, I, I, I totally uh, recommend uh, people seeing sorry to bother you uh, and mm-hmm. studying the character uh, army hammer 's brilliant portrayal of this character, Steve Lift, uh, because Steve Lift is such a perfect name um, to for these uh, uh, you know for uh, this sort of archetypal uh, tech ceo uh, and so uh, I mean I think that that you know kind of my my answer is to you know to really politicize this issue uh, to support candidates and run as a candidate yourself uh, who is for everything regulating breaking up nationalizing looking putting all of those options on the table in terms of saying look we've got you know what we what these are really uh, or what these these things ought to be really are, are potentially incredible public utilities that could revitalize democracy, that could uh, create an actual real internet of things uh, where we truly were socializing uh, the goods and services that we needed and that people need in their lives. Um, But that's, but that these, this particular class of people is holding back that progress and misusing that technology that should belong to all of us
1: so your uh the upshot there is facebook and google uh join the socialist revolution
0: employees uh, yeah the the workers Please, should uh, should seize um should you know the, the means of of production. facebooking.
1: not facebooking the means of facebooking mm-hmm. i like it
0: how about email fundraising campaigns what tips do you have uh for folks and uh, i mean it's so important uh and uh, you i i, I know uh, have worked with many 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 candidates on this uh, on this stuff
1: yeah absolutely i i think that there there are always more things you can learn about email fundraising. So these tips are for folks who are earlier on that curve. Um, If if you already know these tips, you should be teaching them to others. Um, One of the things that I see a lot is uh, using the same fundraising landing page, regardless of what the email is about. And sometimes just doing something as simple as changing the headline on your fundraising page to match the subject of your email can result in more donations. So that's my first tip. Second uh, is to customize your social share. Uh, Particularly when folks share ActBlue, there's a default which is great, but it's like you share it on Facebook or Twitter and it shows this like ActBlue logo and then a super generic um, message below it. And software like NationBuilder and others that allow you to click to share Um, there's usually a generic version, and sometimes the generic version won't even have a photo that pops open, and you want a photo that pops open when it's socially shared. So customize that, and you can do that in ActBlue pretty easily, you can do it in something like Nation Builder pretty easily. and if you test it and it doesn't look the way you expect it to look, you can simply go to uh, just Google Twitter card validator and it'll show you an example. And it's interesting because these tools also used to be called delinters, because what happens is the information about a link to display it uh, as, a, as a social media card or image or post, Sometimes it it, uh, gets out there and it's incomplete and so I'll post on uh, This Twitter card validator and I'll get back uh, Like the text but the image will be blank and then I run it again and it kind of knocks the lint off of that uh, That data about the link and tells Twitter. Oh, it also has a photo and then the photo will show up So this is a really good way to to boost um, the sharing make sure that it's going to look good uh, if uh, someone posts your fundraising link after going to that email. I like to put pop-up buttons that like, create a tweet and create uh, Facebook uh, posts as well. And uh, if you Google around, you can figure out how to do that. So that's tip number two. Third is link your graphic in your header, in your email template, and any photos in your email to your fundraising page a lot of times what you see is you'll click on a photo it doesn't go anywhere you click on the header and it either doesn't go anywhere or it goes to uh to the home page make that your fundraising page cuz uh, actually nothing gets more clicks in my experience than the photos and the um, and the header or, or logo at the top of your email uh fourth is something that's stylistic a lot of um particularly uh democratic establishment uh consultants do emails, so from a lot of establishment candidates, you'll see these emails that are uh, very, very alarmist, uh, and they also have like an appeal to authority. They'll say like, uh, you know, Barack Obama says you need to donate, you know, or they'll say, Barack emailed you, Joe emailed you, Nancy emailed you. Who else has to email before you'll give? Um, I don't really like that style, although I'm sure it works or they wouldn't do it. Uh, I use something called you-focused writing. I learned that from my friend, uh, Nathan McKenzie Brown, our mutual friend. Um, and it's simple marketing copywriting. You can Google you-focused writing and you'll find material on how to do it. But it's basically appeals based on like, instead of saying, um, give me money so I can do this, it's like your donation will allow us to achieve this goal. Um, make Make the reader part of the action and they're more likely to give. Uh, and, uh, my last, uh, tip and it's sort of two, uh, as, as number five, I always like to have five tips, not six, but, um, urgency is along with the, you focus, uh, urgency is a good tactic to use in fundraising emails and, uh, you can make it real urgency, not false urgency. You can say, um, we want to hire a new staffer. We need to raise this much money by, you know, by Friday. Sure. You can say it's the end of the month and we set a goal for the end of the month and we need to raise a little more or we've beat our end of the month goal and we're raising it. Can you help? Um, and along with urgency is, is frequency. Um, a lot of email programs are way too infrequent because most uh, maybe, maybe, one in four subscribers opens each email. So if you want everyone to uh, open one email a week, you should be sending like four emails a week. And that's kind of my benchmark, is about four emails a week. Um, And sometimes more to people who frequently open. Um, And obviously different lists vary, but sending once a week, you're gonna raise probably half as much money as you would raise if you sent four times a week. And so always consider, you know, your goal is not to not offend one subscriber who thinks they're getting too many emails. Your goal is to raise more money for your cause. Um, so those are my email fundraising tips. And uh, I do run a private network for progressive digital campaigners. It's mostly Facebook focused, but if you'd like to join, just uh, reach out to me on Twitter or by email
0: uh i uh, in terms of a kind of a last bit of advice um i know that some candidates are squeamish about sending too many emails or being perceived as uh kind of doing too much of the email song and dance uh for fundraising um although the reality is that they work and the re- and that you can uh there are more and less ethical ways to do it uh, and that you really can't afford to be squeamish about it. You can't.
1: I mean, I think that's the thing is that both it's hard because when people run for office, they have to have like an inflated ego to do it, but it's uh, they also sometimes have to do things that they wouldn't want to do if they weren't running for office. You have to be well developed about your ego. You have to be willing to say, if I'm running for office, some people are going to criticize me. Um, and you also have to say, you know, if experts have advice, I'm like open to listening to that advice. Part of the problem we have with progressive campaigns is like so grassroots that we're always reinventing the wheel. Like, there's, there's not enough experience in the campaigns to know um, which decisions are ones that you should spend a lot of time on and which ones you know, you should just be plunging ahead with.